Heavenly Father, we're seeking your presence. We know that Revelation tells us that you've called a generation, you've called a people to be overcomers. You've really called the history of earth to be overcomers, but in a special way you've called us. And I pray right now that as we study your word, as we study science, as we study health, that we would grasp hold of you and the principles that you've given us, that we would become the people you've called us to be, that we would find strength to overcome through our Savior Jesus, for we pray in his name, amen. amen. Now, before we actually go into overcoming, uh, I just want to preface it with kind of, kind of the thought that sometimes when we think of overcoming, we can c come into under the notion or the perspective that we have to overcome to be saved. Meaning, if I do the right thing, then I deserve salvation. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Is, is it possible to be saved by your works? And I'm going to tell you the only way to be saved by your works, and it would work like this. Think about this with me for a moment. Uh, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23... Does anybody know? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? That means that if you sin, you deserve what? Death. Okay. So if you've sinned, you deserve to die. Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short or fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody has sinned. And according to that, then that means that everybody deserves what? Death. Everybody deserves death. So you deserve to die. In essence, we've all sinned. And we have now the death sentence put upon us. We, have, we need to receive the death penalty. And imagine this with me for just a moment. Imagine a criminal in the state of Texas. You may know that Texas is the state that executes more people than any other state. Uh, that's just what they do over there. So imagine a man is caught molesting and killing 30 children in the state of Texas. Now, if he is caught, if he is found guilty, I can almost guarantee you that individual is going to receive the death sentence in the state of Texas. Whether or not you agree with it, it doesn't matter. It's Texas and it's going to happen, right? So the wages of sin in Texas for certain sins is death. Now imagine that man who he, let's say he even admits it. He says, yes, it's true. I did it. All the evidence points to it. There's no way around it. He did this and he is now put on death row. Now, while he's on death row awaiting his execution by, let's say, the electric chair, how many good deeds does this man have to do to make up for all of those 30 children he's murdered. How many good things does he have to do to make up for what he's done? There is no number of good deeds he could ever do to make up for his sins of the past. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to think about this. If you receive, if, if your crime or your sin is worthy of death, how many good things do you have to do to deserve eternal life? There's no amount of good things you could do to deserve eternal life. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Meaning, let's say, okay, let's say we wanted to somehow be righteous by our own goodness and by our own works. The only way we could do it is to, number one, you have to receive the death penalty, so you have to die. And then you would have to resurrect yourself and then live a perfect life. Come on in. Don't be afraid. 
welcome. I'm glad you can make it. Hello. So the only way that you could actually be righteous by your works is to receive the death penalty, and then after you've received the death penalty, to, to resurrect yourself and then live a perfect life after that point. So what we, we have discovered that it is impossible, impossible to be righteous by your own best works. Does this make sense, yes or no? So right at the beginning, right at the outset of, over, of this overcoming session, or of the sessions that we're going to go through, we've discovered that it is impossible to be righteous by your works. So the overcoming we're, not, we're talking about is not overcoming to be good enough to be saved. You will never, in and of yourself, even, let's, let's say you stop sinning today, and you never sinned until Jesus came. Would you deserve to inherit eternity? No, because you can't make up for all the past sins. Do you understand? Another illustration of it would be like this. If, if I went into Walmart today and stole a candy bar, and then, to, shame on me, right? I mean, that's, and, and then tomorrow, I don't steal a candy bar from Walmart. Does that make up for the fact that I stole one yesterday? So do you see how quitting sin does not cleanse you from sin? It doesn't cleanse your past. It doesn't expunge your sins from the books. It doesn't fix the problem. So we need something much better than just stopping sinning and thinking that makes us good enough. Now the reality is, is that God says He's going to have a group of overcomers. But they do not overcome to be saved. But they overcome in, in response to the salvation they have received in Jesus Christ. And I want to let you know, and we may actually, you know, I think, I think maybe I'll do a session on that while we're here in these overcoming seminars. John says in the first epistle of John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. John says the, one of the reasons that he wrote the book of 1 John is so that you would know that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. And eternal life is not based upon being good enough. It is based upon a relationship with Jesus. He can and will give His people victory in the last days, those who are faithful to Him. But they do not become faithful to be saved. It is meaning they don't do the right thing to be saved. They do it in response to the saving relationship they already have. But we can know that we have eternal life. Sometimes we fear, but isn't there that quote? Isn't there a quote that says, No sanctified tongue will be found saying, I am saved? Yes, there is that quote. But... That she, she's speaking in response right there to the, to the kind of, uh, there, there's a Main Street perspective in, in some of the Christian circles that goes like this. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. Then I went on and I said the sinner's prayer. I don't know that the Bible actually mentions the sinner's prayer like it's mentioned by many people, although we ought to come to Jesus' repentance, confession, and accepting Him as our personal Savior. But they believe after they've accepted Jesus and claimed forgiveness, uh, claimed Jesus' death on the cross, and they've accepted that, that from that point on they are saved and they can never sin. They believe that they can, not that they can never sin, but that they cannot be lost. You're welcome to come up. There is another spot there. Um, so, 
the reality is she was combating that issue, the issue of saying, for instance, let's say I say, maybe you've heard this, a guy holding one, a beer in one hand, a cigarette in the other and saying, I'm saved. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal savior. What she's saying is no sanctified tongue will ever be found saying that. Meaning that I accepted Jesus, I can go on for the rest of my life, and I can sin. Does that make sense? Yeah. But John wrote a book of the Bible to tell us that you can know that you have eternal life. So you see there must be a balance between uh, the idea that I'm going to walk around for the rest of my life just wondering, am I in a saving relationship with Jesus? I don't know if I'm in a saving relationship. I mean, it would be kind of like me wondering, am I really married to my wife? Am I really married? I mean, does she, does she really love me? And are we really going to stay together? You know, I mean, this constant fear, you can understand how Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't want us to constantly. It doesn't mean that we'll never feel lost. It doesn't mean that we'll never feel guilty. But John wrote a book to show us. And I think maybe, I think I'm going to do that. I think probably maybe the last ses session that we do well, either here or in the main meeting, I'll, I'll share about what the Bible says and also what our other writings have told us about we can know that we have eternal life. We can have a saving relationship with Jesus. And so to begin this seminar, I'm pointing out, I'm beginning with saying that you are not overcoming to be saved, but you are overcoming in response to the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. So I want to be very clear with that. So you don't walk away thinking, Chad's telling us that we, we do these things, we become right to, to inherit eternity. That can never, ever, ever happen. You'll never be good enough as a human being to inherit eternity. It is only through Jesus Christ, His cleansing, His giving you His righteousness in substitution for your own filthiness that makes you righteous. So I just want to begin with that point. But in this seminar, our goal is to learn how to strengthen the frontal lobe to be enabled to be strengthened to find victory through Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever heard the story of Phineas Gage? Anybody heard of Phineas Gage? Several of us, good, faithful, you know, church-attending people now. now not, and if you don't, that's okay also. But you learn about maybe Phineas Gage in a psychology class. Uh, the reason is, or maybe I don't know, even physiology, I'm not sure, but one of the things they discovered because of this man by the name of Phineas Gage is they discovered uh, some of the workings of the frontal lobe. Well, what happened to Phineas Gage? It was in the 1840s. What happened was there was a man by the name of Phineas, and he was a, a hard worker. He was a foreman of a railroad crew in the state of Vermont. And what they would do is, there in Vermont, they were probably very similar to what they had to do here in California. They were laying down track for the railroad. And in order to do so, if you're in a very rocky area like California, you'd have to blow out some rocks with dynamite or some blasting powder, something like that. So he was doing exactly that. And what they would do is they would drill down into the earth and as they would drill down, they would then put some kind of explosive powder, maybe like gunpowder, and they would put sand on top of it. And then they would take this metal rod called a tamping iron, and they would pack it down, and they would have some kind of maybe fuse or ignition switch, and, and they would either light it or, you know, send the electric shock, however it works, I'm not sure. But they would, they would do that, and then it would explode. Well, one particular day, Phineas, while he was tamping down, now he was the foreman, he was, so he was the head of his railroad crew, he was tamping down that rock there, or the sand in there, on top of the gunpowder, but somehow, some way, nobody knows for sure, but it, it sparked. 
And as it did, it exploded, and that rod that Phineas was using shot out of his hand, hit him under his cheek, and blew literally right out the top of his skull. And it just kept going, like a missile. It literally just kept going as it sailed through the air. And to get an idea of what happened, imagine here that, that I am lying down here. So I'm lying down. So my, my face, I'm pointing up. So this is the, my, you know, kind of my forehead area. And uh, this is the back portion, my head laying down on the ground or whatever. And so this here, this gray area, obviously it's all called gray matter, but this gray area for our illustration is called the frontal lobe. This section was blown out by the rod that Phineas had go through his skull. This is what happened. This is, so as it went under, it went just under his cheek, blew out the top of his skull, he lost his left eye. That you'd think, well, obviously being in 1848, he must, have, he must have died probably very rapidly from either the instant impact or the blood loss or whatever. But that's not what happened. Actually, what happened to Phineas was is that uh, within moments, he was able to stand up, walk, and he would tell everybody that he came in contact with in, within minutes. He would tell them the whole story. I just had a rod blow through my skull. It took out part of my brain with it. And people would literally think, what? How could, how could that possibly happen? I mean, it was hard to believe. Imagine it. But amazingly enough, Phineas, he lived through the accident. But notice what we discover here. F Phineas was a foreman of a railroad crew. He was a faithful husband and father. He was well-liked by his fellow workers. And he was a religious man in regular church attendance. And then came that terrible day of September 13, 1848. And that's where these, uh, here's some, you know, computer-generated imagery that gives us a perspective of what happened. Shot through, he lost the eye, went through the brain there. And he had what we would call an accidental lobotomy. An accidental lobotomy. And now, bef the, before the accident, we, we see that he was, um, actually, before, did we miss our, before the accident? There. Oh, yeah, I just did it. Wow. Forgetting things very quickly. <laughs> so basically, Phineas, he was well-liked. He was, he was what you would call an upstanding American citizen. And after the accident, he would become very emotional and angry about things. And it made me think, well, maybe if a rod blew through your skull, you'd get a little angry and emotional too, right? But it seems to be that it was more than that. It was more than that. He was changed in his character. He lost interest in church and spirituality. Keep in mind, he was a religious man, faithful in church attendance before that. He became irreverent and prone to excessive profanity. He was swearing and cursing a lot after the accident. He lost all respect for social customs. And it goes on to say that he became very irresponsible. He went from a prized employee to the unemployment roles. He, and he ended up forsaking his wife and family. And he joined a traveling circus. Now, notice what changed about Phineas was not necessarily so much of his intellect. He was still rather intelligent, seemingly. Certain aspects of your intellect is affected, yes. But what changed about Phineas was his character. And this is actually a picture of Phineas. You see, he was a nice-looking man. And this is the actual rod that blew through his skull. This is the actual one. And you can see his eyes shut because I don't know, uh, you know, obviously because he lost the eye there. What's that? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Maybe they sewed it shut. And so he has that shut eye there. And um, so basically because this is one of the initial studies, we could say, that helped scientists discover the effects of the frontal lobe.
And a neuroscientist tells us these words here. We see that the brain's frontal lobes, which sit behind the forehead, allow us to use what we know about the world to guide our decision-making. Right here, science has discovered that the frontal lobe is the center of your decision-making. When you're trying to decide between right and wrong, that is taking place right in the frontal lobe. When you're trying to decide, not just right and wrong, but decide what to do, that decision takes place in the frontal lobe. And scientific studies reveal that the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. Spirituality, morality, and the will. So your spiritual life takes place in the frontal lobe. That's why it is so important for us to protect, nourish, and strengthen the frontal lobe. And so we're going to be talking, the whole, the whole tenor of this seminar is based upon the idea of the, the fact that we can strengthen the frontal lobe. You're welcome to come in. Don't be afraid. I know it's, it's, a, it's a strange setup. You have to walk in front of everybody to come in. And it's not your fault. You didn't make the building. It was, do you know this used to be a TB clinic, tuberculosis clinic? And so that's what this whole, not just this building, but the whole facility was. And so it wasn't really designed for a GYC West, right? Now, okay. All right, so what are, so basically what we just said, quick review, that scientific studies show us that, that the frontal lobe is seat of the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. It's some have called it the citadel of the mind. And we're going to talk about some things to overcome. Some things to overcome are things like chronic stress. Now we're going to discover that there's actually a good form of stress that's actually good for the body, but chronic stress is actually destructive to the human body. So we want to learn to overcome chronic stress, or at least not to live in chronic stress. Number two, we want to learn to overcome anger, lack of forgiveness, or judgmental thoughts. Now somebody may be thinking, ah, uh, come on in. No problem, no problem. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Um, that, so we want to learn to overcome anger. Well, now obviously keep in mind Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27 say, but be angry and sin not. So there is an anger that is not a sin. There's a genuine, uh, what would we call that, kind of like a holy, a righteous indignation. But most, I could say this, that most of our anger is probably not righteous. Would you agree with that? We might think it is. I'm right, right? You know, we think we're being righteous, but actually, typically, it's not righteousness. So we want to learn to overcome those things. Number three, we want to learn to overcome eating disorders or habitually eating unhealthy food, right? We want to learn to overcome those things. Number four, these are what we normally think of when we think of overcoming. Overcoming, overcoming addictions like smoking, drinking drugs, pornography, and lust, uh, bad things on television, gambling, or fill in the blank. You may have some kind of negative habit that nobody else really, maybe not nobody in the world, but nobody you know hasn't. Maybe many people would think, oh, that's not a big deal. But you know your negative habit is something that's affecting your spiritual life. So you could fill in the blank there. And just so you know, I'm not going to ask you to reveal to the room all your secret sins. We're not here to do that. We're actually told that public sins should be confessed publicly. But secret sins should be confessed secretly to the Lord. There's this modern idea in much of Christianity that we should just come together and just tell everybody all the filthy thoughts we have and all my, my, my disgusting things and, and really biblically, actually, and we're also told that these things can actually bring people down around us 
by telling them all the filth that goes on in our thoughts. So public sins, meaning a public sin would be if I all of a sudden got fuming mad at all of you and started yelling at you, then it says public sin should be confessed publicly. I should say to you, listen, I am sorry. I shouldn't have spoken that way to you. That's a public sin, right? But secret sins should be confessed secretly to God. Does that make sense? So we're not going to ask you to confess all your sins to us. That's not biblical. This idea of having, sometimes it's even not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but slipping into Protestant churches where people say you should have like a partner who you come to and kind of confess all your sins to. Not biblical. It's not a biblical thing. Meaning secret sins go to God. Public sins should be confessed publicly. So, I mean, there can be a time where you have a friend and you're saying, hey, brother, I'm really, really struggling with this. Can, can you please pray for me? There, there can be a time for those things. But the idea that we need to confess all of our sins to another human being is not biblical. It actually can lower that other individual. It can actually get them thinking dirty thoughts as a result and bring that individual down. So we, we should be careful to a degree about that. But there are times maybe where we sense, I need to go ask somebody for help because I'm fully struggling. So there, there can be a time. So there's a balance. But Revelation chapter 21 says in verse 6 and 7, And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus here, the beginning and the end. To him who thirsts, I will give the fountain of the water of life freely. He who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now notice what it says. It says, he who overcomes will inherit all things. So it, now we've already discussed, we've already clarified that we do not overcome to be saved. But part of that salvation process is that we will overcome when we cling to Jesus Christ. So, but I want you to notice what it says. It says, he that overcomes will inherit all things. But it says first, to him who thirsts. Kind of one of the prerequisites for being an overcomer is we have to have a thirst, a desire for righteousness, a desire to overcome. What that means is when I began smoking, I had somebody tell me, you know, why don't you quit now? But I had no desire to quit. I actually enjoyed it at the time. And so I didn't have a thirst to quit, but it wasn't until I became addicted and it was, it was you know, hurting my lungs or my throat and I could notice that. I didn't get, it wasn't until the point where I actually desired, had a thirst to quit that I could change. And if you, if you have some sin in your life that you don't even care to quit, ask God to give you even the desire to quit. Because you may not even have it. You may love the sin so much, but we need that desire first off and foremost, and we need God to give that to us if we don't have it. So the main premise of our seminar is this right here. You may have heard this. It's a very important quote. And it says this, Never forget that thoughts work out actions. Repeated actions form habits, and habits form what? Character. And you may also know character determines our destiny, right? So this is the fact. We, that our thoughts, the things you think about work out actions. The actions that you do turn into habits, and the habits you have turn into your character. This is for good or for bad. Meaning that if you have a negative habit, meaning you, let's say first you started thinking some bad thought, those, that bad thought will turn into a bad action. That bad action done enough times becomes a bad habit, and that ba the, your bad habits, all of them together, are your character, right? So if you want to change what initially, many times people try to change their, maybe their character, they try to change their habits, and they try to change their actions, but they keep falling into the same old actions. So the question is, what really needs to be changed initially? 
The thoughts need to be changed. If the thoughts are changed, the whole person will be changed, right? And this is biblical. You may know this, Romans 12, verse 2. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Mind. If you're going to be transformed, it takes place, the Bible says, in your mind. Transformation takes place right in the mind. And honestly, I think you could, the whole verse of Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we want to be transformed, and I, I would challenge you to even memorize that verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusts in thee. So our mind, we can be at peace with God when our minds are stayed upon Him. So the mind is the central issue of overcoming. Now, there are a few essentials to overcoming. The first one is what we've already stated. It's a desire to overcome. Number two, you also have to have somewhat of an open mind. I'll give you an example. Uh, a fellow who came to our seminar, uh, he, told, uh, he told us, you know, I really, I'm different than normal people. Many th we all feel that way, don't we? Like, I'm different. And we are. We're all different. But our bodies work in, mostly in a very similar way. He said, I I'm different than most people. I don't need to drink water. He said, I don't drink anything. I just get all the water I need from the food that I eat. Now, you can exist that way. You cannot flourish that way. It's possible to exist without flourishing, right? And, but then he later told us that he had a, a real, trou real trouble with, um, what do you call it? I always forget. Heartburn. Do you know one of the things that causes heartburn? Dehydration. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't different from most people. He was just like everybody else. If we all stopped drinking water, sooner or later, most of us would probably have a severe issue with heartburn, right? And so my point is, we're not telling you to have a mind so open that you get into spiritualism or some crazy stuff. Not at all. But a mind open enough to say, if what I'm doing isn't working, maybe God has something else in his arsenal that can help me, right? So, so you have to have somewhat of an open mind. Fadia, my wife, is going to come up and she's going to share with us uh, a disclaimer before we proceed and she'll proceed further with us. So, there you go. Just clipping on here for you. Maybe just right there. Oh, thank you. All right, our disclaimer is very simple. Um, and you'll understand why we make this disclaimer as we go along. It's uh, that we're not your doctors. And, uh, you know, we're going to be sharing some things about health. But if you are under the care of your doctor, we ask that you continue to be there. And you can just implement some of these things that we're teaching and talk to your doctor about it as well. So that's our disclaimer. <coughs> Revelation 14, verse 1. We're going to continue with the thought that we were just sharing about... Um, the frontal lobe, what Chad just shared about Phineas Gage and um, what they discovered after that accident about the frontal lobe. But let's see what the Bible says. This is really interesting. Revelation 14 verse 1 says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on, on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in where? Their foreheads. Isn't that interesting? And what's behind your forehead? The frontal lobe. And what does God want to write in that frontal lobe? His name. And what does name mean in the Bible? Can anyone tell me? Character. Character. How do we know that? Yeah. 
Can you give us some examples? Can anyone think of somebody's name changing as their character changed? Jacob. Right. We have uh, someone even mentioned Lucifer. That's right. He lost his name after his character changed. Um, and his forehead changed too. That's right. Wow. Interesting. It's so neat. Every time we share this, there's always something that comes out as, as people share things. Um, then you have Abram became Abraham. And one of the ones that I really like is Jacob. Uh, I speak Aramaic. It's one of the oldest languages on earth. And in Aramaic, the word for Jacob is similar to the word for heel. And um, makes sense, huh? When he came out of the womb, what was he doing to his brother's heel? He's grabbing it, right? And so it became a part of his character that he was a heel grabber. When you grab somebody's heel, what, what do you, heel, what do you do? You trip them up, right? You're a deceiver. It's a part of your character. And that's what his parents saw when he was born. They called him Jacob, heel grabber. So um, the beauty of it is, though, what did God uh, do in Jacob's life that changed him? He wrestled with the Lord, right? He, he wanted to change. He was... He was thirsting and hungering for righteousness. And uh, as, he, as he worked with the Lord and as he pled with him, God gave him victory. And he changed his name to what? Israel. Israel. And what does that mean? Overcomer. Pretty much overcomer. He, he uh, wrestled with the Lord and he overcame. So um, isn't that interesting? So God wants to change our characters. These are the promises he's making to us. As we come to him, as we have this hunger and thirst for righteousness, he grants us that. So he wants to write the Father's name in the forehead, and that's the character. He wants to give us a new character. Whose character would you want in particular? Christ, right? Um, character also is, you know, we talk about, like you mentioned in, Ex in Exodus, about the law, right? And the law is a transcript of God's character. It reflects who he is. And Jesus in the New Testament tells us that he was the end or the goal of the law. He fulfilled it. You could see it in his life as he walked, as he talked, as he ministered to people, as he dealt with difficulties of people coming at him. Imagine right now as I'm speaking, someone comes in and just starts making um, accusations and saying things and interrupting me. How would I deal with that? How did Jesus deal with that? That's the character God wants to put in our foreheads, that we would react the same way Jesus would, that we would talk with one another and love and minister as he would. So isn't that a beautiful promise? God wants to put that in our forehead. So we realize how important this frontal lobe is just by this little study we just did, right? So in any battle, we need to know what the enemy's tactics are. So we need to know what are some frontal lobe killers, right? And some obvious ones, of course, are drugs. Drugs um, can be very hard on the frontal lobe, right? Uh, they alter the mind. But did you know a lack of use can affect the frontal lobe? A lot of times, especially as young people, we're afraid to make decisions. Why are we afraid to make decisions? You're afraid to make a mistake, right? But if you don't make any decisions, are you ever going to learn anything? No, right? Life just happens to you, and you don't really learn from them. And I say this carefully. 
Um, it's better to make a wrong decision than it is to make no decision. But I say it carefully because you need to grapple with making decisions and trusting the Lord. And if you make the wrong one and you're very sincere, don't you think he'd help you turn around and make the right one? And you're like, oh, that wasn't a good decision. Maybe I should do it like this next time. But you're growing. Another thing is Chad shares this with me that um, there was a 90-year-old woman who started feeling like her mind was slipping, her memory was slipping. And you know what she ended up doing? She ended up memorizing the book of Revelation. And so this mind is powerful if we learn how to use it. Uh, certain kinds of music actually also uh, affect the frontal lobe and uh, head injuries. We need to protect our frontal lobes as we are doing certain types of activities, whether you're working in the house or you're riding a bike or whatever it may be, you need to uh, protect it. We have met people throughout the years as we've shared this um, seminar that have had issues with physical, you know, like Phineas Gage, physical um, damage to the frontal lobe. And what I would say to you is try to do the best with what you have. Just because it's messed up doesn't mean you need to mess it up more and give up. Just try to work with what you have, and the Lord will bless abundantly. Uh, lack of nutrition. We will discuss that uh, during these sessions about how a lack of nutrition affects the frontal lobe. It, the brain uses a lot more energy and is one of the smallest things in this body. It, I think it's... Um, I'll tell you about the percentages of how much energy it uses compared to the, the weight that, that it holds. So interesting things. So what goes on in the liver? Can anyone tell me that? Cleaning the blood, right? Right, right. When, when directing what hormones go where, um, you know, like when you're stressed out, um, your liver will kick in um, because you need to deal with the situation and uh, it'll release certain hormones to, to help you with that situation. And one of the reasons it does that is because um, the liver actually um, stores glucose. It stores glucose because when you're needing something in a stressful situation, you need extra glucose to deal with that situation. Let's say a kid's about to run into the street and I have to run real fast, come grab them, or I have to lift something heavy to help someone, that energy will come from that extra glucose. But the hormones have to be released, and then I go and I have that energy because the liver releases that glucose. So we understand that, that it's there. And then when you release that, but the toxins come out with it, right? Whenever, whenever you um, have something come out from there, the toxins come out with it. When you are fasting, okay, you're not putting in any extra energy. Where do you get that extra energy from? The liver, right? Because it's releasing that glucose. So with it comes the toxins. So it's uh, a natural method of detox. It's interesting that the Bible talks about uh, detox in terms of fasting, right? The Bible tells us that it's, it's important to fast every once in a while. And so um, God has given us this natural detox. So what we do through the seminar 
it's usually, it, I mean, I don't expect you guys to do it here because we're only with you for a few days, but normally we do this seminar over five or six days. And we do this modified fast cleanse. And how it works is if there's heavy alcoholics, drug addicts, or diabetics, this is what we have them do for the first day. They drink water, fruits, veggies, and whole grain bread. You need more uh, food. It's not a full out fast. Uh, normally when we're doing this, it's people who have never tried anything like this. And so we're trying to be careful and mindful that people aren't used to fasting. And so we made a modified one. But especially if you're a heavy alcoholic, drug addict, or diabetic, you need to be very careful with your blood sugars when you're trying a fast. Uh, you will, as an alcoholic, a heavy one, have um, seizures. Possibly, I shouldn't say have. You possibly will get seizures because you're taking away the nutrition that you need. Um, so you need to be careful. But everybody else would, for the first day would do water, a fruit, and 100% fruit juice. And what we mean by the 100% fruit juice is you don't buy like, you know, the little boxes of juice with 10% juice and then I don't know what the other stuff is. It's, it's uh, important that you're getting the 100% because the other stuff will spike your blood sugars and then you'll have a real down and you get the shakes and the stress hormones kick in and it's not good. So it's more important for that first day just to do the water and the fruit. And I have to share this as well because we re, um, sometimes we'll have people come back and say, I just couldn't make it through the day because I was getting the shakes and stuff. And I said, well, how much did you eat? Oh, well, then I just had like a banana and a few grapes. And then I went several hours. Well, it's a little different. And mind you, sometimes our eating habits are really off. We might eat like just a little bit for breakfast and think we can get through the whole day. So that won't work for this kind of a fast, you need to eat a little more to sustain your blood sugar, okay? A lot more <laughs> to sustain your blood sugar until the next meal. And uh, just the, the whole point is to do the cleanse. It's, it's not to uh, hurt yourself. So just be mindful of the whole blood sugar issue because then if your blood sugar drops and you get down and the shakes, you're gonna wanna give up and not even try it. Is there, is there any questions from that? Oh, you could do you could do that as well. Yeah, you could do vegetable juices as well. It's not. It's just because the next day. Oh, each day I tell you what to eat, and so then the next day we we have you add veggies. But it's okay if in in juice form, it's okay to do either for the first day. Yeah, it, it, it's just you do what you can um, in terms of what, what you're getting. A lot of times when we're doing this, we're, we're doing uh, this at a local church and we have people from the community come out. And so you're, whatever you're doing at that time, keep doing it, but just improving. Um, some people can't even afford to get the fruits and stuff as we're sharing these things with them. So we have to kind of help them out. And some of the nights we'll have fruit smoothies for them and different things. So each person, you take this and apply it to yourself and where you're at. Yeah. Thanks for the question. 
Um, a lot of times when people are trying something new, they uh, get kind of discouraged and say, I don't know if I can do this, but here's a little motivation. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, what, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, you have of God and you are not your own. For you are what? Bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So this is a motivation that we realize these bodies were bought with the precious price of the blood of Christ. And if we suffer a little bit in them for his glory, then so be it. So I just want to encourage you to, to go forward, try something new. I'm not telling you to try it now. You can take notes. We have some handouts and you can try this at home uh, with your family, with your friends, whoever just has a motivation to do it together and try it out. There's a super drink. It can increase energy and endurance, prevent kidney stones, aid in digestion and elimination, regulate the body's temperature and bring about a feeling of well-being. Yet very few of us consume as much as we should. What do you think this is? You got it. God's beverage. You can't improve on God's beverage. That's right. Uh, it does a lot of things. And this is interesting. When I start sharing this, you will see how many of you start picking up the bottle and drinking. Uh, it's, just a, it's just a thing. I, every time we share, I just start seeing people, oh, I should drink more. Uh, Mount Everest, one of the things that they discovered, not the only thing, but one of the things they discovered in making it to the top was how much water they drink. And this doctor heard about that, and he's like, is that true? I have to figure this out if that's true, if it actually gave him endurance to make it to the top in how much water. Because they're packing everything, right? And so they don't want to bring extra water. So they weren't, but then some of the teams started to drink more water and made it to the top. So he did this study where he put people on a treadmill, and he just had them walking on the treadmill. And um, here we have a... Um, a graph to show us that in this zone of exhaustion, the top, that's where they hit, they hit the high temperature of, I think, like 100 and, 101 and a half or 102, something like that. And then the zone of comfort is, was below that, and they could keep going. So the first group was not given any water. They were just given it. Huh? Yeah, I said that. So the first group that was on the treadmill were just given water as um, they, they desired it, okay? So as they, or no, they weren't given any water, forgive me. The first group was not given any water, and uh, this is how long they lasted. Right down here is the hours, and they lasted about uh, one and a half hours to two hours, maybe two hours, and they were done, okay? And all they were doing was walking on the treadmill. The next group was given water as they desired it. Oh, I feel thirsty. Can you give me some more water? So they kept going until maybe about five and a half hours, something like that. And uh, then they were done. They, were, they hit the zone of exhaustion, which is the high temperature, and they were done. Then the next group, uh, everything that was put out, they measured, and then they put that back in in water. Okay, so everything, whether you sweat, um, wh whatever the case may be through their breath, Whatever they lost was put back in, and this is what happened with them. They just kept walking and walking and walking, and so they ended it at about seven hours. They're like, okay, we get it. It's true. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't um, 
go until they were exhausted. They just said, okay, we get it. It's true. Water does make a difference in terms of endurance. So how many of us want to drink more water now? Yeah, that's right. Uh, a person would have to lose 10% of her body weight in fluids to be considered dehydrated. But as little as 2% can affect athletic performance, cause tiredness, and dull critical thinking abilities. Adequate water consumption can help lessen the chance of kidney stones, keep joints lubricated, prevent and lessen the severity of colds and flu, and help prevent constipation. So you see, um, just a little bit of, you know, 10% you'd be considered dehydrated, but just a little bit, as little as 2% affects dull critical thinking. So a lot of times if you're feeling tired, or you can't think straight, or you're feeling anxious, maybe you should start drinking some water and get that brain hydrated because it's working so hard, it needs to be lubricated. And that's one of the first places you're gonna feel it is in your head if you're dehydrated. How about some benefits of drinking water? It lowers blood pressure, it elevates your mood, it helps detoxify the liver, so if you're trying this um, fast for the week, you could drink a lot of water and help get those toxins out even faster. It helps maintain or lose weight and uh, maintains body temperature and it clears the thoughts. Uh, when you're feeling hot, water is your best internal air conditioner. I know from friends who live in Albuquerque who are roofers, they can be in the middle of the summer up on a roof and it is so hot there that they, they make it all right because the, the foreman told me they start hydrating them right when they wake up in the morning. They say, start drinking your water, and they make it through the day. So just an um, encouragement. How much water, a lot of people ask. You can do it like this. Because we, we have a formula because a lot of times, uh, what, what's the one that's given? What's the recommendation that's given? Right, that, that's something that's been made up, but as far as what we're told by the doctors and stuff is usually eight ounce glass, eight, eight ounce glasses, right? And that's for you, for me, for everybody. And there's some big guy and me will drink the same amount of water. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. Uh, elephants drink a lot more than me. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's all about size. So here is a formula for your size. You would drink half your body weight in ounces, or if you do the metric system, it's 32 milliliters per kilogram, okay? So if you weigh 100 pounds, how many ounces of water you need to drink? 50, 50 you got it. When the cravings come, okay, let's say you're trying to overcome something, or there's a temptation, when that comes, here's a few things that we recommend you try. Uh, to overcome that immediate temptation or craving. Number one, drink your water, okay? Uh, a lot of our addictions, not a lot, but some of our addictions have to do with hand to mouth. Whether it's smoking, biting your nails, eating bad food, uh, whatever it may be, it's a lot hand to mouth. We have, it's this uh, neuromuscular addiction, right? And so now, you can replace that with the water. You're still doing a hand-to-mouth, right? So when you're getting a craving for something, put that to your mouth, and now you have a better habit in place for that neuromuscular addiction, right? Uh, so drink that water. 
And then also, when that craving or that temptation comes, get up, remove yourself from the situation, and go out for a walk. In between these sessions, I really highly recommend that you go out for a little walk. You can get, do the loop. Yeah, you could do the loop. There's a loop around campus. So walk, walk, walk. And we'll talk more about exercise as we go. Some powerful stuff that has to do with the frontal lobe and how important it is that you keep exercising. Really neat studies. Right, well, young people need more than walking. Uh, we're told that they need vigorous exercise, okay? Uh, also, we are gonna be talking about how to overcome temptation and cravings through Bible promises and prayer, and also deep breathing exercises where you breathe accurately. We're not talking about like new age stuff, you sit, um, you know, stuff like that. We're talking about learning how to breathe from the diaphragm the way we were meant to breathe like a baby does, right? How does a baby breathe when you see him laying on its back? You see the tummy going up and down. But somehow we have taught ourselves to be shallow breathers and we breathe from up in the chest instead of from the diaphragm. So we'll talk about that and Chad actually will actually come up right now and show us how to do that. All right, what, what time do we finish? 10.45. Okay, we got 10 minutes. All right, everybody stand up a moment. All right, now on the count of, what's that? Five minutes. Oh yeah, five minutes, I'm sorry. I was looking at the seconds, not the minutes. All right. um, everybody take a deep breath, okay? Ready, one, two, three. Okay, now just to clarify before I even go on any further, many times when you hear about deep breathing, and, and myself included, we think of new age, we think of mystical things, not at all. You actually read about it, there's two books, the best books that have ever written been ever written on psychology are called Mind, Character, and Personality. Now, they're compilations, but they're phenomenal. And they basically talk about, one of the things it says there is that when you, when you, some people feel depressed, and this isn't the only reason for depression, but sometimes people feel depressed, all of a sudden they're going along their day, their day's going fine, and all of a sudden, ugh, they just feel terrible. And she says sometimes that happens because they're shallow breathing. And they're just not getting enough oxygen to their brain and bodily organs, and they feel bad. And so we want to learn. She says one of the first things you need to teach people in health is proper uh, posture, number one, proper posture. Uh, so I'm going to show you how to do that real quick. And it might be hard because you've got people sitting next to you. But one way to actually just stand erect is put your hands up straight and reach as high as you can. And then, then if you, you might be, not be able to do it because you've got people next to you. But if you go, put, bring your arms now down to your sides just like this it will make you stand kind of accurately. So it's kind of simple. So if you're ever, you can find out if you're slouching by just putting your, pointing your hands to the sky and bringing them down to your sides and, oh man, I wasn't standing this erectly before, right? So, <laughs> now, so now try to keep that posture, but learning to deep breathe. Now, when, you, when I saw you deep breathe, some people do it like this. Now, what that is actually is breathing mainly into your chest and your shallow breathing. We want to learn to breathe from our diaphragm like a baby does. That they, the babies are not spiritualists, right? They don't know anything about that. They just breathe the way God designed them to breathe, right? So everybody take a seat a moment. And it might be hard because maybe the seats are too close together. Maybe they're not. You might be able to do it. Now, I don't have a seat, so I'll sit on these tables. Uh, but basically, the way to find your diaphragm is if you sit with your legs spread apart a little and you put your hands or your arms between your legs and you just bend over like this. I don't know if you can do it, don't hit your head. But then once you're bent over, take a deep breath. 
do you feel it pushing into what feels like your stomach? You feel that? If you're not, you're doing it wrong. And you better bend over a little further or something. I'm not sure. But now, do you feel that in your stomach? It's not your stomach, but it's your diaphragm. But that feeling, that is where you should be breathing when you take a deep breath, okay? So get that feeling a moment. Do it one more time and get that feeling where, that, where you're supposed to feel that. Okay, that's where you should be breathing into when you take a deep breath. Okay, now everybody stand up again. And now take a deep breath, but try to take it into the diaphragm instead of just into the chest. Now you will take it into the chest also. Your chest will expand, but mainly you should be, your stomach, your diaphragm should be expanding. Ready? One, two, three. You feel it in there? Sometimes it takes a little practice. And the reason many of us have lost that is because we, as we get older, we start to get maybe a little gut, and we don't want anybody to know that. So we suck it in, and then we start, we just breathe into our chest, but we're actually shallow breathing. And you may not notice this, but when you are tempted, when you are tempted to get angry, when you are tempted to look at pornography, when you are tempted to lie, when you are tempted to do anything, what you don't generally notice, you might notice, you'll notice it now maybe if you pay attention, is that when you start to get tempted, your heart rate increases, your blood pressure increases, and your breathing rate becomes, number one, more shallow, and number two, more rapid. <sighs> I mean, that's an exaggeration, but possibly if you're really, really angry, if someone's super angry, they might start, you know, almost hyperventilating. Uh, but when you're tempted to do any of those things, all of these physiological phenomena actually take place. But we can learn to make them calm down by just breathing the way God designed us to breathe. Not, not emptying your mind and <gasps> nothing like that. We're not talking about that. We can actually dwell upon God, but learn to breathe accurately the way we're told to in the book, Mind, Character, and Personality. So we are completely avoiding the new age, 100%. But we are learning to breathe the way we were designed to breathe. So if we're tempted, we can think, God said, Isaiah 46, verse 10, Psalms 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God, Right? And we can think about him. Not, not, don't, don't empty your mind. That's new age. We, we avoid that. We think upon God. We meditate upon his word. We think about him. What would Jesus like when he was in the midst of all these trials and he was stressed? His natural heart as a human, I mean, as a human heart, we would want to be angry at Pilate and all the Jews for screaming at him. But Jesus was showing love in that situation. We can simply take a deep, few deep breaths and our heart rate calms down. We meditate upon God and his word and we're thinking about him. You see, New Age gets part of it, but then they go into emptying your mind so that uh, another spirit can fill your mind. We don't want anything to do with that. We want God to fill our minds. Does that make sense? So we're learning to breathe accurately. Now, um, let's do it just for a moment, Lear learning to breathe in and out just a few times, and do it slowly, okay? Try to do it slowly. Ready? One, two, three. Try to feel it in your diaphragm. Okay, now slowly go out. You can breathe back in. Back out. Back out. Now, just learning to be, okay, you may be seated in a moment. Now, um, basically, one of the things is learning to breathe accurately causes you to have adequate amounts of oxygen. Remember, fully avoiding anything new age, but learning to breathe, we're told to in, the, in, the, in well, simply the spirit of prophecy. But nevertheless, what I want to challenge you to do is be drinking adequate amounts of water, half your body weight in ounces a day. I weigh between 150 to 160. 
So let's say I'm 150, just to give an even easy math, that'd be 75 ounces a day for me. Uh, probably more like 80 for me, you know, I'm probably 155, but nevertheless, uh, you know, so I have to drink several bottles a day. Don't try to do it all just today. You'll be in the bathroom all day and you'll probably hate it. But slowly work your way up to it and you'll actually begin to enjoy it. You'll feel more energy. Your mind will be clearer. Now, we're going to get into other scientific things. And I've, I've decided, and I, the next message, I'm going to begin by talking about gaining victory over premarital sexual things, gaining the victory over homosexuality, ga gaining the victory over drinking or drugs, gaining victory over these things, and what the Bible has to say about these things. So we're going to begin the next message with that, and that will be in 15 minutes. We're going to say a quick prayer, and then for any of you who choose to come back to this seminar, what I'm going to challenge you to do, and I'm going to go do it with whoever wants to go, is go for one quick loop around the uh, path. This will help clear our minds. We, we will talk about exercise, what it does for the brain. It is I wish I could go into it. I just read a phenomenal book about the science of exercise and the brain, what it does to your frontal lobe, physically uh, increasing the volume of your frontal lobe. So it's so very important. So I want to uh, challenge you, any of you who can, we'll, we'll try to go for a quick walk around the path, and then we'll come back and start our next message as we go into some very serious things that have to do with temptations that people deal with today, real temptations, what the Bible says about these things. And we'll also go into more science on different things also in the next message. But I want to begin with that. So let's close with a word of prayer. We'll take a 15-minute break and we'll be back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for science, that your word is not contrary to science but rather all true science uplifts the Word of God. Father, that science actually can help us overcome, but science alone cannot make us overcome. We need that divine influence from you, Heavenly Father, from your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. As it says there in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, a new spirit will I put within you. Or a new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Father, we need the strength from you to be overcomers. I recognize people struggle with all different kinds of things. One person may struggle with anger. One person may struggle with greed. Another may struggle with lust. Uh, another may struggle with wanting to show off their body to people of the opposite sex. Others may struggle with homosexuality or, or uh, you know, heterosexual pornography or homosexual, whatever it is. The reality is we have a Savior who is stronger than all temptation. And Father, as we go deeper into these things, my prayer is that we will grasp hold of the victory that we discover in the Word of God, that science can help us, health principles can help us, that if we live out the principles of temperance and health, that they will actually make, give us clearer minds, strengthened uh, brains to, to be able to function in a way that will make us overcomers. So Father, I pray that we would learn to work with the bodies that you've given us, that we would use them in a way that would make us overcomers. Bless us now for those of us who can get some exercise, those of us that will come back in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.